Hey everybody, it's Will with Schedulefly. Welcome to Restaurant Owners Uncorked. Uh, I'm really excited today to have Marcus Giuliano on the phone. Uh, Mark and his, Marcus and his wife Jamie own Aroma Time Bistro in Ellenville, New York, which is uh, where the Catskills meet the Hudson Valley. And they opened New Year's Eve 2003, so 15 years in. Uh, they're still rocking and I don't even know where to start with a with an intro because Marcus has just done so much and uh, just been so active. But uh, first certified green restaurant in upstate New York. They've got 250 craft beers, 250 fine wines, 250 boutique spirits on their menu. Uh, One Green Planet named Marcus one of the top five food activists uh, making a change. Uh, and, and he's been really big on marrying holistic cuisine and five-star cuisine and just has a lot to say, and I could, the list goes on, but he has a lot to say about the type of food we eat, what he believes in. He has a very clear uh, philosophy and way he goes about preparing his food and serving his food and what they serve and why it's important. And he's just clearly got a lot of passion uh, just on his website. Uh, you can tell for, for what he does. So, Marcus, man, thank you very much for joining. My pleasure. My pleasure pleasure i love i love talking about our passion here at the restaurant well let's let's dive into it man so tell me a little bit about your background and your story and then what led you and your wife jamie to start aroma time in uh 2003 sure so professionally trained chef um 15 years prior 15 years experience going into aroma time and uh worked at some really nice places uh, the Greenbrier in west virginia the broadmoor in colorado springs Worked at Latant Claire in London. Uh, Pierre Kaufman, uh, Gordon Ramsay worked for Pierre Kaufman. Marco Pierre White worked for Pierre Kaufman. So, you know, I was really just, and as a younger chef, just so um, focused on developing my career as a as a uh, somebody who could cook really good food, as a as a well trained cook. And I was just honing my skills place after place, uh, and just getting as much experience as I possibly could. And of course, when you when you work at places like like these uh, five star properties, like the Greenbrier and the Broadmoor, uh, you have access to the food that the guests eat on a regular basis. And um, working in working in just in this industry, you know, you, we work hard and and we we, we eat at, at bad times of the day. Um, and I just began to gain weight throughout my career. It was like every job I took, I knew I'd gain a pant size. And it got to a point where it was just very, very frustrating uh, to see myself just keep gaining weight throughout my young career. And uh, I was on a few medications and I had, I had asthma, asthma my whole life. Uh, my blood pressure was creeping up. My cholesterol was creeping up. My doctor wanted to put me on more meds. Um, I had acid reflux so bad the medication wasn't working. Of course, I was more focused on my career than I was my health. So I really wasn't doing that too many outdoor activities. When you work as many hours as we all do, I didn't really have balance. And uh, all that caught up to me at a very young age. So by my late 20s, I was I was a medical mess or I was a doctor's dream because uh, I was at the doctor's office all the time. And uh, I remember going to my doctor's office. I must have been 28 or 29. He goes, Marcus, you need uh, cholesterol med medication. And I said, that's that's where we have to stop this. I said, this is this is insanity. I said, I'm, I'm not taking cholesterol medication. Uh, he goes, you need to, and he was really firm with me and I was firm with him. I said, listen, I know what I've been doing wrong my whole career. Uh, give me a chance to change this. And he agreed. My doctor agreed to give me 30 days. So give me 30 days. And, uh, and working in Colorado, it's a very progressive state, a lot of young people. Uh, and it was really frustrating when somebody would come into the restaurant and say, Hey, I have celiac disease or I'm vegan. What can you make me? And this isn't stuff they teach. They taught you in culinary school back in the early nineties. And it wasn't stuff that was mainstream back then. So, I mean, gluten, I mean, everything had gluten in it back then, right? Um, you use flour and everything. And just, so it was, I was embarrassed when people came to the restaurant and asked me these questions. So I'd been reading the books ahead of time. And I knew that what, you know, we all know this, uh, what, you know, we are what we eat. And I knew I, knew I was just eating too much of, of, of the types of food that I was cooking for my guests. And I went back 30 days later to my doctor. I uh, got more blood work done. Uh, he called me in and said, Marcus, I don't know what you did, but whatever you did was better than the medication would have done. Mm -hmm. uh, my cholesterol plummeted 75 points and uh, the weight was coming off. My medications were, were dropping off. 
uh, within 90 days, I had no more asthma. I had asthma my whole life. I couldn't run a quarter of a mile. I couldn't run a loop, uh, uh, loop around the track uh, because I, I, I couldn't. I was, I was unfit, and my asthma would take over, and I, just, I, would have, I was huffing and puffing and wheezing. So uh, things started changing. I started exercising, started eating right. And it was an amazing journey that really transformed the way I look at the food was going, the way the food was going on the plate. And, um, you know, I changed my diet and, and, and I keep a lot of these dietary philosophies still to this day. So, you know, I call myself a chef on a mission because my mission is to educate people. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a real food paradigm. Uh, I like to support small companies, independent companies. I don't like to give our money to, when I say our money, because we all work very hard for our money. And when people come to my restaurant and they trust me with their money, it's our money at that point. I want to make sure the money goes to the proper place. I want to make sure it's going to a place that's producing better carrots than the, than, 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 than whatever other restaurants buying. I want to make sure that it's buying better beer. It's coming from a smaller family, uh, from a community that's, that's supporting real jobs. So whatever product it is that comes into the restaurant, I want to make sure that it's that, that there's some kind of substance to it, you know, some kind of story, some kind of family, some kind of, some kind of real business as opposed to a huge conglomerate um, that's just, you know, buying brand after brand and consolidating down. And, you know, they produce 200 brands out of 27 where, uh, facilities and ship worldwide. That That's really not my idea of food or drink, um, that mass production. So, I, you know, when this whole thing happened, I started working with a lot of farmers, a ton of farmers. And it really changed the way I looked at things because I always thought, that having a happy guest was the pinnacle of my career. I thought that when a guest was giving us a great review on Zagat back then, and they were they were shaking my hand, taking a picture with me, and and wanting to come back in for my food, I thought that was it. But until you start working the other side and realize that you have to honor the supply system and everything in the supply system from our from our earth, our environment, to the person selling it to us, the person growing it, whether they're a salesperson, whether they're a farmer. Um, that's when my career really came complete. And I was like, wow, this is the whole other side that we, that we're not taught in culinary schools, that we're not taught in these big restaurants and hotels to honor the supply system and to make sure that we're honoring the environment. And when that, when that happened, everything came full circle. And I just felt, you know, I felt so good about what I was doing, my career. And I'd learned in culinary school and my first job or so that, you know, it could take 10 or 15 years or longer for a chef to really develop his style of food. And I was like, this is crazy. I, I want to cook good food. I want to cook good food. And this is my style. And when I found this connection, I was like, okay, now this is my calling. This is my mission. This is what I feel good about. And I like to tell people that, you know, I'm not the restaurant owner that goes to Whole Foods and shops for my family and then turns around and buys the cheapest products for you to eat, my, my guest. It, it's, it's all one for me. My passion is my business. That's how I make my money. That's how I live my life. It's all one connected. And, you know, if I go to a restaurant and they don't have a small independent brand of beer and it's all conglomerates, I don't have a beer. I don't have a glass of wine because for me, it's about living what I believe. And, uh, you know, I can do without a glass of wine or, or a beer if I'm out eating and they don't have something that fits my paradigm. So it's it is tough to go out to eat. Uh, but I, there's a lot of great farm to table restaurants out there now. There's a lot of amazing breweries, wineries um, that just are making an, an, an amazing array of products that are so available. When we opened in 2003, th there was no uh, distillery boom. There was no craft beer boom yet. You know, there were still great craft breweries out there, but they were far in between. And now us restaurateurs, us chefs, us restaurant owners, we have so many options to support local. And even if it's not local, to support the right thing. Because let's face it, you can't buy local tequila, tequila. You can't buy local cognac. But you can buy cognac that's produced by a small family that's still family run. That if you showed up there at their door, they would welcome you into their house and show you what they're doing. As opposed to welcoming to their massive warehouse if it was a big company. So, um, you know, I'm really having a lot of fun doing this and educating our consumers uh, you know, Sims, the restaurant store always said in the nineties of their ads, you know, an educated customer is our best customer. I totally feel that way. The more you give and educate your guests, the more they appreciate what you do. Cause I hear a lot of people say, well, I could never do what you're doing, Marcus. I could never charge that for a burger. I could never do this. I could never do that. You know what? I'm in a town 90 miles North of New York city in a rundown town that lost 1200 jobs when we first opened. The population is only 3,500. Um, you know, I mean, the, when I used to joke, one of the biggest uh, way people made their money in our town was that they were landlords in Section 8 housing. 
And that, that was sort of like the truth for a while. The, the, those are the people who are making money in town. Um, and that's totally changed uh, the scenery. We've totally changed the scenery here in our town. Uh, you know, they say it takes one person to do something. And I had uh, the village manager. I had, had a lot of the village officials saying, Marcus, you're our guy to open a restaurant. We were the first restaurant in gee, 30 or 40 years in our town. And now there's a vibrant restaurant row. Um, people come into town here. Uh, they want they want to eat uh, at all the restaurants in our town. Our main street looks beautiful again. So, you know, like I said, I'm just really having fun doing this and li- living my passion in my business. You um, with, so tell, tell talk take me back to two thousand three when you when you were opening there the town wasn't doing well. Why? why first of all, were you from that area, or why did you choose? Why did <laughs> yeah, you choose Ellenville? What's 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 the backstory on that? Because we were very naive. <laughs> okay, naive no. and uh, right. So we're probably good there, right? What you didn't know, and and yes. now here you are, right? You need a certain amount of that because that's what kind of makes you that unstoppable, right? Yeah. That's what that's what makes you that's what makes you think you can do anything and. You know, I grew up here. My wife grew up here. So it was sort of a homecoming. for It was a homecoming for us. We moved back from Colorado in 2001. I was working in Westchester County as an executive chef at a country club. Uh, 9-11 happened. I wish we moved back in 2000. 9-11 happened. Downturn of economy in New York. Country clubs weren't doing good. Um, I knew that, you know, my, my longevity there was not going to be forever or for the foreseeable future. And uh, I knew I knew deep down that the only way I would be happy is if I was my own boss and where I called my own shots. Uh, I don't want to be told where I had to buy the meat from, where I had to buy this from, who I had to buy from, or that I had to sign a prime vendor contract with somebody. And that's all dictated in a lot of places you work, especially in country clubs and you get very political. And I, you know, board member has a friend of a friend and he's connected here and connected there. And, and um, that, was, that wasn't for me. I, I wanted to express myself. And when you're going to work and you're taking your lunch and you're a chef and you're taking your own food, to your work, something's wrong. There's a disconnect, right? So when we opened in 2003, I was like, wow, you know, this is my own place. I was a partner in a place previously in Colorado. But again, it really wasn't all my call. Um, You know, I had to still answer to somebody. I still had to respect somebody else who had a different vision on things. So now my wife and I are, you know, it's our restaurant. We have the same vision. We eat the same way. We live the same way. We raise our kids this way. But you open in a desolate town in 2003, and you realize how quickly you need to improve your business. And you realize how quickly you don't know a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I thought I knew a lot. And I always referred to myself as a restaurateur, as an entrepreneur. Um, I always looked at myself further than a chef, uh, much more than a chef. And I needed those business skills that I took. And I, I, I started a business degree before I started a culinary degree. And so I had the business background. I had the business mind. But, man, you learn real quick that you need to be a marketing maniac. You need to, you know, be able to manage databases, your guest database. You need to be able to do direct marketing. You've got to figure out how to get people, not only that, to figure out how to get people into my restaurant, I had to figure out how to get them into the town. Mm-hmm. I'd go to chamber uh, commerce mixers all over the, the valley and, uh, you know, half an hour away. And people were saying, you're there. I'm afraid to park my car there. I would never come to your restaurant because I'm afraid to park. And that's literally the reputation that our town had. Um, there's a prison here. And uh, a lot of the inmates that come here, their families move up from from New York City, from one of the five boroughs. And and they, they call this home while they're while their family's in jail in prison here. And uh, that was a strong part of our economy was was that job market there. And a lot of a lot of people were coming into town that that, you know, weren't really my ideal client at all. My, my ideal customer. So I had to become a destination restaurant. And I had to turn around the image of what was happening in my town. So it was a lot, lot to overcome. And people, you know, people started seeing what I was doing and how I was getting out there and how I was marketing. And more people kept asking me questions and more people kept asking me for advice and help. And 15 years later, I've written two business books. I have a site on, on coaching other restaurants. I love to help, you know, just as much as I love eating great food and serving great food and farm to table and local and sustainable. I really have a passion to help other business owners see that, hey, you know, there's so much to know about this business. And just because you're a great chef and a great cook uh, doesn't mean you can be a great business owner. Uh, there's so much more to it. And that's, you know, we all know the failure rate. That's nothing new of restaurants, right? We all know that most restaurants are going to fail. That's because a good chef isn't a good business owner. Mm. And it's different cooking food as opposed to paying bills, uh, respecting your community, 
balancing all that stuff. And a lot of chefs, uh, let's face it, are hardheaded. And they think that their food is good enough to get people in the door. And there's not too many of them nowadays. But, you know, when we opened in 2015, this is before Facebook. This is before social media. I mean, MySpace was in its infancy back then, too. And people didn't think that they had to advertise at all. They're like, I don't need to do a print ad. I don't need to do uh, the yellow pages. I don't need to do anything on the Internet. No click ads. I don't even need a website. You know, it was a mentality of some of these old timers because my food is good enough. Yeah. And I learned right away that if I'm not a marketing maniac and the marketing is my first job every day, there's not going to be people in my seats. There's not going to be people in my town. So two major obstacles, get them into my restaurant and get convince them that they need to come to my town, um, you know, which which was obviously uh, not not the alluring place that it is today. Well, so when you um, going back to when you then when you first got started, you must have had you had a lot of confidence. You had a little naivete, but um, tell me what it felt like. I mean, were you convinced that you guys were going to make it? Were you concerned? What were that? You must have had some reservations, but then you know a lot of confidence so you could pull it off. Like, what was your mindset back then? Because there's so many people that Marcus that you know, as you know, and I'm sure you've run into a lot of them through coaching and everything else. They they want to start a restaurant. They believe they can do it, but it's it's a it's a tough step to make. People do know the failure rates, and some people blow that off, and some people probably don't take it seriously enough and don't have enough. You know, they they think, oh well, I, I'm a good cook and I can run a good restaurant, and we know how that goes. But then there's a lot of people that probably could do it, do it, but maybe they're scared off by the fact that so many restaurants don't succeed. So what's the mindset when you're going into opening your own place for the first time after you've been? you know, more or less working, you know, as a partner or working for somebody before that. All right. So the mindset is you have to be invincible. You've mm-hmm. got to do this. This, I mean, this, this is your calling. You've got to do it. The mindset. And of course that, that's how I was. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I became humbled very fast. Um, our first four months into it, uh, I was like, we're out of money. We've burned through all our money. Did you guys fund and it yourselves or what was we your... We funded it ourselves. Okay. We funded it ourselves. Gotcha. We, all, everything was ours. We took a home equity loan and we were totally tapped out of everything. Um, I mean, I had taken iodine at the time, which was, you know, very, very high payback uh, credit card advance. And we had tapped everything out. We had taken money from our local uh, uh, community that was... That was uh, uh, money, low interest rate loan to for business development. So we had just tapped every resource that we possibly knew at the time financially. And four months into this, we were out of money. And I had to get rid of my chef. And, I'm, of course, I'm a trained chef. Uh, and I cook a lot. But I also like to be in the front of the house because I like to interact with my guests. And as long as I could jump back and forth on the flexibility, that's what I was hoping for. And I had to get rid of my chef. I had to get rid of other other members here. And my wife and I had to buckle down big time. And it was it was us working this business um and thank goodness that our parents lived close because they were helping out with our kids both both sets of our parents are, are still in the town and they would help out with our kids uh in those younger years and but we just you know you become become humbled very very fast and never once did i think we were a failure i just thought that we had to try harder and do better and i'd gone through a coaching program i'd gone to see anthony robbins live uh unleash the power within this was literally two months before we opened the restaurant. So now being naive, being from here, being a chef with that mindset and then going to a, some kind of seminar where you're walking on hot coals, man, I can do anything. And that's what I did. I had coaching afterwards, coaching for a full year, did a lot of visualization and um, just kept, just kept believing in what we were doing and our passion. And not once did we ever like falter and say, you know, well, should we buy cheaper products? Should we, you know, buy cheaper beer? Should we buy? Never once did it, did it even like come to a reality of ever doing that. It was like, no, we're here for a reason. We're selling a local grass-fed steak. We're selling this cognac. Whatever we're doing, this is what we're selling. We just need to educate people, and, and just need, it needs to happen. And, um, but as far as the mindset is, you you've got to go in there knowing, thinking, but acting. Because, you know, if you're not going to act on this and if you're not willing to take criticism and advice, I mean, I, I I still have a coach. I still have a business coach. And, you know, and I have to listen, you know, because they're looking at a different angle than me and, and just have to just say, okay, you know, even today I was on the phone. Somebody said, okay, I'm listening to you. I'm listening to you. Say what you want to say. I'm listening to you. I'm giving it a thought. Um, and after, after you digest that thought and, and, and their advice, you know, I said to the one person today, I said, you know what? I was hesitant and. 
and but I didn't say anything. And I just listened to you. And OK, so I'm coming around on this because people on the outside can see things that you don't. Um, so but really, you know, you have to surround yourself with great people. Uh, you can't you know, your vibe attracts your tribe. You know, five people that are around you, you know, you become you become like them. And I joined a mastermind group in 2008. So five years, four years into it, I joined a mastermind group. And that really changed my business. When I learned, when I was brushing shoulders with very high level restaurateurs from around the country, uh, it totally changed my mindset to thinking, okay, my first year I did that, I raised my business. My business rose by 43%. Hmm. And that was, that was the key right there. Just networking with the right people and getting people around you that actually care about your business. When we opened, people were betting that I would close in a certain amount. They were taking bets how long it would be until we closed. Those aren't the people you want to associate with. You know, and even telling your parents and your loved ones, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And, you know, if they're not giving you good vibes and good energy and supporting you, you know, you might want to choose who you're telling your information to. You only want to go to people that have, that have done it. You know, a lot of people say, well, so-and-so said it's not a good idea. And I look at it and I said, has so-and-so ever done that? Has so-and-so ever opened a restaurant? Has so-and-so ever owned a business? You're asking the wrong person for advice. You ask people that have done things successfully, and they're going to give you a different answer than people that are afraid to do something. And, you know, and fear, fear is one of our, fear is one of our, our, our biggest, uh, you know, our, our biggest uh, uh, fears, you know, fear, fear is like one of the worst things to have. And you can't have fear and faith at the same time. It's either one or the other. It's mm. fear or faith. And you've got to just go in there. And know, have your faith, and then follow it up with actions. Well, let me ask you this. And okay, so this is this is really interesting to me. So, for, so in t- four months in, you're out of money. You you let your chef go. You let so your wife and you buckle down. What did you do? What you know? You had a lot of good insight and training from from. Uh, you, I guess you said that was you had been to the Tony Robbins seminar. But what actions did you take? You said you became a marketing maniac is that when that took off or what happened then that changed the marketing the, the, the marketing didn't happen until our first full year open okay uh so this was april when we, when we ran out of money and of course money comes in every day in the restaurant industry so you know you just kind of scrape by week by week by week you know hoping that you know you can pay this bill pay that bill and kind of before we knew it the summer took hold the summer took hold and we were busier and I remember one of my salesmen saying, you know, tax day, things change. April 15th, things change. Things get better, you know, Memorial Day. And then 4th of July, you're rocking and rolling. And honestly, we didn't catch a breath financially until August. Until the end of July, August is when we caught our first breath financially. Mm. And um, we were like, oh, my gosh. So me, thinking, okay, let's keep this momentum up. I put money aside to, for marketing. And I wasted all that money on bad ads and magazines. And I went out there and just advertised the business in magazines, $500 a pop on this ad, $500 a pop on that ad. And again, by November, December, we were like, Oh my gosh, we're back to this again. We're slow again. The cash flows uh, is down. The reserves are burnt out. We're back to the same situation as last year. So I said, okay, Instead of me placing an ad for $500 in this magazine, I sent out an email and I was smart enough to start grabbing people's emails. And I teach people when I coach them that an email, your, your database is your number one asset, mm. you know, above staff, above the build, above the building, above your food. That is your biggest asset because when you close down, when you move, when you reopen somewhere, you can email 10,000 people that you're open again and give them an offer and get them engaged with you again. So, I knew to put comment cards out and start doing um, and start doing uh, uh, building my email database. That first year I had to fire my web designer. I don't think I really fired her. I think she quit on me because I couldn't pay her. So I had to learn quickly that first year how to build out of design my own website. So I had to start from scratch and I went on, you know, something like GoDaddy, a, a comparable site like from GoDaddy. And, you know, for 15 bucks, I bought my domain name and I used their free web tool and I figured it out. I just didn't. I figured it out. So I was capturing people's information. I was a subscriber to one of the bigger email, email market marketing companies out there at the time. And I had think, I think I had 400 people in my database in my email database going into 2005, January of 2005, I sent an email out and I said, you know, we're used to spending money every month on ads. And of course I didn't have the money. So I said, instead of us spending $500 on an ad this month, 
we want to give out $500 in gift cards away to you. Mm. You know, email us back and we'll have to have you to send you a $15 gift card. And literally within 10 minutes, we had 10 replies. I'll take a gift card. I'll take a gift card. I'll take $15. And I looked at my wife and I said, okay, we're, 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 you know, we're already at 150 bucks. We're giving away. I said 500. We didn't stop. I think we gave away $1,200 in $15 gift cards that month. And wow. Our- is, that, is that because you knew if they came in with a $15 gift card, they wind up spending 60 or 50 or whatever it was? And- exactly. Yeah. Get them in the door, right? Yeah, yeah. And I knew the $500 ad wasn't getting people in the door. And this, I saw real results. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. So we called it our anniversary offer. And we priced it. We, we offered it like, in like, like, just like the airline companies do. We gave them less on the weekends and gave them more off during the midweek when we really needed the business. And people were coming in Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, the $15 off of two entrees or whatever. And it was gangbusters. We're like, wow, that was so simple to do. And that's when I got that really that, okay, how do I work this email database quicker? In fact, we weren't even subscribing to one of the big email people like Constant Contact back then. We were sending it right through our Outlook, Hmm. right through Microsoft Outlook. So we were getting a lot of bounces and things like that. We weren't doing it correctly. Uh, And I recommend if people do that, that you get a professional uh, company that does that where, you know, you're following all the, all the legal, uh, terms and people can do an opt out and you just don't start adding people to a list. You know, they opt in the correct way and you find them the correct way. And so, I mean, at that point on, I was like, okay, email marketing, that's what we got to do. And then I learned about direct marketing. Okay. If they're going to give me their email address and they're, if they're going to give me their home mailing address, why not send them an offer? Why not send them a postcard? So we learned that direct mailing is was super simple and very effective to do, which, by the way, it's 2018. Direct mail is still it. Mm. Um, the open rate is amazing when you send somebody a six by nine color personalized postcard. The open rate is almost 100 percent. You send somebody an email, you're lucky if you're getting a 10 percent open rate. And I have tips and tricks uh, in, in my in my proprietary arsenal of stuff here. Right. We get a 50 to 60 percent open rate on a lot of emails. Uh, because we're sending very specific contact content to people that actually want to hear our message. Um, and that's one of the things I teach with my, in my, in my marketing for other restaurants. So, um, you know, at that point I was like, okay, marketing, marketing, marketing. I found this mastermind group it got thrown in my lap. We joined the mastermind group. We couldn't afford the mastermind group. It's a thousand dollars a month at the time. We couldn't afford it. Um, we flat out couldn't afford it, but I knew, Deep down, that's what I needed to do. I needed to be part part of this group. I was in this group for the full day. I got like, you know, like, like a, a sort of a test drive. And I was like, I need to be around these people. These people are, are great. They're smart. Um, they're successful. And, you know, I've read all the books. You read, you go to Tony Robbins, you read Think and Grow Rich, you read As a Man Think. If you read all these books and you know, hey, the mastermind is where, it, where it's at. And so we just went on a limb and we joined it. And out of desperation, out of hope, um, and it totally changed, totally changed our business to be able to now have somebody critiquing and caring about what we were doing, saying, hey, I did the same promo that you did, but I did it this way. And it worked. Here's my ROI on this. And you start collaborating with people. And it's amazing. That's when we raised our business 43% last year, uh, that, uh, that particular year. That's incredible. That's it's a, what, it, a mastermind group. Is it something that is that that's not just for restaurant owners, though, right? That's for is that just anybody you, there's all types of mastermind groups out there okay but we actually belong to a restaurant mastermind group that's specifically for restaurateurs for people in new york primarily or is it uh, all over the country all in over Canada. the country okay do you meet them in person or is it we meet them in person it's funny because the way we got hooked up with you was through our mastermind group oh really one of our one of our guys was on the chicago show um back in i think 2009 2010 or something uh-huh. 2011 However, whenever we joined, one of our guys was there, Michael Tebow, and he came and he reported back to the mastermind group. Hey, there's this great company out there, Schedule Fly, and it's this, this, and this. And we joined that month. So it was actually from our mastermind that we found out about Oh, you my guys. gosh. How about that? That's the only year we ever went to that show. How about that? Well, it worked out well. That's hilarious. <laughs> really? Yeah. So and some, some, of my, some of my friends uh, uh, use you, too. Jim Rowe, he uses you. Yeah. Um, and some other people. Yeah. part of that group? Okay. All came from that mastermind meeting. Oh, wait a minute. I remember something about that. Okay, this is kind of coming back. I remember that. Well, um, okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I wonder if it's in a similar way that you realize the um, 
dollars you were spending on on ads wasn't working. I, I don't I don't really know. This isn't the full reason, but we went to that National Restaurant Association show and we were kind of buried in the back of this exhibit hall. We got some we got some stuff from it, but the amount of money we spent and time to go up there um, was really significant. And then I. You know, we kind of reverse engineered it and went, well, God, if we had that same amount of money, like, what are other ways we could invest that? And that's kind of where we, we decided to go in different avenues going forward. But that's, so that reminded me when you were talking about, you know, your story, it's it's uh, really important, I think, anytime you're investing into anything to really understand the return you're getting. And even if you do understand the return, is there a better return you could get doing it some other way? You know, when you're investing into anything like that, it's a really good process to go through as a business owner on a recurring basis don't you think oh 100 percent. like i know for every dollar i spend on a birthday postcard i get back 34 dollars. okay yeah there you go so you got i mean that's, that's right there yeah you know that's that's that, that's huge for every anniversary offer i get back like 19 dollars or something we did a tax a tax offer this year where we sent people in our top of our our database we sent them a ten dollar and ten dollar and 40 cent check called the 1040 and it looked like a government check <laughs> And we ended up getting back, I think, 14 to 1 return on that. And we were upset because it was only 14 to 1, right? But another restaurateur would be like, oh, man, I would totally, totally do a 14 to 1. But if I'm doing the 34 to 1, I'm like, the 14 to 1 is just okay. That's really awesome. Um, Well, okay, so let's change gears a little bit. Tell me, I want to learn more about, just because I'm very personally interested in this, and I know a lot of people that listen to this are as well, but the let's go back to the type of food you serve and um i read on your website you know the, the comment about marrying holistic cuisine and gourmet five-star cuisine so um dive into a little bit of the details about what you use what ingredients you use i know you use oils instead of butter and things like that like, tell me more about that and, and why sure so i knew a long time ago going through my health crisis that that gluten that really nobody can digest gluten, so we avoid gluten a lot. Well, let me let me stop gluten. you there. I don't I don't let me stop you there because this is so I'm I'm really curious about that. Tell me more about gluten because a lot of people eat gluten gluten free. What I mean, my wife can't eat gluten. It causes her all kinds of problems. She gets rashes and she get. I mean, there's all kinds. There's a list of stuff that happens. I eat gluten. I probably I'm sure it affects me, but not in the ways that she does. So we, you know, we always are trying to balance our diet out and I probably should just shouldn't eat it anyway because there's probably no real upside but give me more about that because I know a lot of people are very curious about this even today I mean it's been a big deal but I don't think people really understand that well I think that people just hear gluten-free and it's been you know promoted really well um, but what does that mean and why can't we right. digest it and why is it important does it go back to the t- type of wheat we develop well that's uh, one thing there's, there's a couple different reasons yeah um, so I learned this back in 1999 2000 when I was going through my health crisis that that just a human human just can't really digest the fun, the fundamental grain. It's just it's hard to digest that grain. Yeah. Um, and then on top of it, now um, we uh, we bred that to not the original einkorn or the original varietal out there. We bred this to a high gluten, you know, high protein, high gluten wheat because uh, we want to make pasta and bread and get things you know really structured. So we've we've transformed this grain. Uh, and hybridized it, and it's not its original, uh, but a lot of our food is like that anyway. Uh, but then on top of it, a lot of the wheat that we buy in the store or in restaurants, um, see, wheat's a storage crop and it has mycotoxins in it, uh, which is also, there's correlation between mycotoxin buildup build up in food and cancer um, because it's a storage crop. Spelt's not like that, so spelt's a much safer option and has less gluten. Um, so spelt's one of one, what's what we do use if we do use a flour. Um, we use a lot of local buckwheat flour too, but spelt if we if we need something a little more structure. So, well, back to the way wheat is stored. Most of the wheat you go in the store and buy is toxic. It's it's rancid. It's just rancid wheat. Mm. Um, and you know, if you get truly um, fresher wheat wheat berries and grind them yourself and grind them fresh and use them. A lot of there's a lot of health experts that saying that makes a difference on on a reaction, the, 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 the type of reaction you get or or less far less of a reaction. Right. Um, just everything about it. everything's rancid. And then, of course, we what do we take with this rancid? What do we do with this rancid wheat? We fry it. We bread things with it. We cook it on high heat. Yeah. Uh, we bake it in a bread. And whether it's organic or not, it's still old and rancid and whole wheat, especially because it's so 
um, volatile with the vitamin E oils in it. Those go rancid and you, they sit in a warehouse and sit on a shelf. It's just like olive oil. You know, you, you press it and you, you've got a, you've got a, a timeline on that olive oil that uh, that's not nearly the two years that they put in the bottle. That's what they tell you. Oh, two years. That's just because they don't want to lose product. Um, but olive oil starts turning immediately. You got to get it in a uh, you know, sealed container, no oxygen in it, no light and keep it cool and uh, don't cook with it because that's the worst thing for olive oil. You know, people say, well, what do you cook with, Marcus? And, you know, no matter what oil you say to cook with, there's going to be something uh, just by the nature of it that's going to break down the oil. Certain oils hold up better in high heat, like coconut oil, avocado oil, um, macadamia nut oil. Uh, but, of course, most restaurants are not concerned in buying an expensive product. They're really just um, they're really concerned with um, doing more of making making finances. So now, of course, now we're stuck to canola oil. Uh, soy oil, uh, genetically modified, uh, hexane gas added, some type of, um, you know, some type of, you know, oil, for example, goes through like seven stages. Uh, you know, it gets bleached. First, it gets brought to such a high temperature uh, after it's pressed at a high temperature because they want to burn everything off. And it's it's basically uh, a dark color that they have to go in and bleach, degum, deodorize, uh, mm. stabilize. And then, so the oil that you're looking at in the store when you go buy it, whether it's getting delivered off your dock from a company or in the store as a consumer, that clear oil is rancid. Mm. It's automatically just the nature of the beast. It's a rancid oil. And this is all stuff that's in our food supply. Um, and like for us, we buy a local sunflower oil that we use a lot of. And when I buy it is when they press it. It's unfiltered. It's a step above expeller press. There's It's cold expeller press, so that the mechanism doesn't go past 105 degrees of the pressing mechanism. I've seen, I've been there, I've seen it happen. And I call them and say, hey, I need 35-pound uh, tub of coconut, of uh, sunflower oil this week. And they press it right then and there and then ship it to me. Um, does it cost more? Of course it costs more. Is it a far better product? <laughs> it's a world of difference. When you cook with an oil like that, um, the nuttiness, the flavors that come out, it's amazing. You cook a potato in that oil and it's like, oh my gosh, where did that, 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 that nuttiness come from? Um, so, you know, it's just across the board. I like to look and analyze each ingredient. Um, like salt, one of the most simplest things, salt is probably one of the worst things to buy sugar, you know, sugar, it's very detrimental to the environment. There's a lot of slave labor, unfair child labor and sugar production. Same thing with chocolate. Um, it's just it's, it's, it's just a nightmare across the board when you start doing research on this. And I don't I feel that I don't need to make my money off of exploiting people. And of course, the whole industry is set up on on using a system that 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 somebody's exploiter somewhere along the line, something happens. And but, you know, when you can start minimizing that and start pointing out and start buying products that are better, um, you know, more just more sustainable seafood is there really a seafood that's truly sustainable i mean you have to put resources into it there's a, an immense amount of resources that go into our food into our restaurant yeah. and we are one of the biggest culprits to the environment so by a chef changing one ingredient one item stop using styrofoam which in some states and some counties it's illegal uh stop using things like that reusing things um buying a local meat versus a meat that was shipped in from across the country um, it just makes such a big impact, whether it's in your community or a community across the globe. Uh, it makes a massive, massive difference. And the more restaurants that can do this, uh, the better off we all are, the better off our environment is. And, of course, we have to educate our guests the same thing. You know, we have guests that come to my restaurant that bring their own to-go containers, even though we have biodegradable to-go containers and this and that. You know, these are guests that are avoiding styrofoam or they're just bringing in their own container because they just want to avoid you know, their, their own, uh, you know, uh, want to avoid throwing something in the trash. So, well, I mean, so you, I want to get, I want to touch on that, the education, because you've got guests that are clearly in that case that are very highly educated, but, um, I mean, all the stuff you just talked about, most people don't know that they don't understand that. How do you, how do you educate? You have to do it. I would guess through doing a phenomenal job of educating your staff and inspiring your staff. I'm sure your staff, you must hire people that uh, either already believe in what you're doing or are are eager to understand and learn about what you're doing. Um, but talk to me about educating your guests so that they understand that when they come in there and they're, they're eating something that's more expensive than a place they might get on the street, they understand that's okay because 
you know, I'm, I'm paying for quality. I'm paying for my health. I'm, I'm making a small additional investment, a short-term additional investment for the long-term gain of, you know, better quality of life, better overall health, less risk of cancer and other diseases and so forth. I mean, that's really what you're, you're helping people do for a small incremental additional cost, right? Isn't that really kind of what you're exactly, exactly. That? That's what it is. Yeah. You know, social media is the best way to educate people now. Mm. Of course, YouTube, I make a ton of YouTube videos. I have 1,600 YouTube videos on one channel alone. I got 65. Do your guests watch those? No, our guests watch them. And we, guests find us because of those YouTube okay. videos. Okay. When you have when you have 15 million views and 65,000 subscribers, people listen to you, they respect you, and they come to, they come give you business. Yeah, sure. That's fantastic. So, um, and some don't because they say, well, I don't, I don't care what I eat, so I'm going to go anywhere and eat. And why pay the extra dollar to get clean food when I don't care about my health? So you have those people too, which is fine. It weeds them out. Um, but social media, Facebook is a great way to educate people. And it's just simple posts like, Hey, did you know there's 55 mines in the Himalayan mountains? Um, Himalayan salt is more of a generic term. Uh, it can be processed any way. It can be processed like regular table salt. Don't get confused with the word Himalayan, by the way, our number one choice of salt comes from Utah. It's family owned. There's one mine, there's one family, there's nothing added to the salt. There's nothing taken away from the salt. It's mm. like basically chipping the salt off the mine yourself and grinding it up and putting it in our salt shaker, that's what you're getting. When you create a post like that, people start sharing it. It goes viral. People tag each other, and people come in and say, where can I buy that salt that you're talking about? Absolutely. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. How many subscribers do you say you have? I have 65,000 subscribers on YouTube that's currently. That's fantastic. How many videos do you do? Like, do you, are you doing several a week, or what's your schedule? You know, like? I used to do, there was a good part of this year, for five months, I was doing two a day. Two a day. Um, on, on what? Like, all, I mean, how, what types of times? Anything. Okay. You know, a guest leaves a comment on, on your Facebook page, a yeah. question, answer it. But make a video format for it. That's um, awesome. Current news that's happening. You're tasting a new wine, do a new wine. Uh, I do a ton of stuff on salmon, farm salmon. Um, I'm anti-farm salmon. And I would, I would interview marine biologists, marine scientists on the downfalls, the pitfalls of salmon farms. And, you know, you do a 30-minute interview with a marine biologist and you ask them six questions or something, you have six separate videos. Yeah. Um, I go do speeches to rotary clubs. Anybody who will listen to me speak about real food or business, I go I go do it. I record it just like I'm recording this today. I'm on video right now on, on my end of the studio, and this will go up as content. And we're, you know, we've already talked for 45 minutes. I probably we probably got five or six, seven different videos right now to put up as content, as great content when they're broken out apart. Yeah. And you put up a series of stuff, you pick up current news, 10 worst foods to eat, 10 banned ingredients in other countries that are still allowed in the U.S. Um, I mean, grass-fed versus grain-fed beef, um, wild salmon versus farm salmon. You do all these kind of comparative things, facts, yeah. 11, 11 attributes of asparagus. You do a video on that, and you, just, you find the content, and the content's there. You just create and educate. Create and educate. Love it, man. That's fantastic. Um, what else is on your mind, Marcus? What else do you want to talk about today? Anything else you think we should cover? You know, um, I mean, we first of all, I could talk to you all day about business and about uh, health and food, but you know, um, because you're just you're very inspiring, you're very highly educated on this subject matter, you you clearly have a big passion for it. So, I could literally talk to you all day. I also respect your time a ton, too. So, tell me what else is on your mind, if if anything. You know, you know, I just want to urge people that that that. You know, eating right and eating better food is so it's so important for our for our future. And everybody keeps saying, well, you know, how are we going to feed eight billion people and this and that? And and you don't understand, Marcus, we can't grow organic. We need genetically modified foods. I'm like, you know what? You don't understand. We don't need more potato chips. We don't need more Snicker bars. We don't need we don't need this crap, this highly processed food that we're eating. Let's let, let's let's put the food that we're producing in the, in the world right now is enough. And it's more than enough, but we choose, like America is the most overfed and undernourished nation out there. We Amen. spend the yeah. least amount of our salary, the least, like 6% of our salary goes to food. There's some countries that, you know, that are 10%, 15%. Of course, other countries that, that have less income are 40% of our, uh, of our, um, uh, of their, of their income goes to food. So if a country that, that, you know, the average salaries, you know, 
6,000 a year and they're spending 40% on their food, man, we can spend 20 bucks more a month, uh, a week, I mean, or five bucks more a day. We're, we're, we're buying these fancy cappuccinos and lattes and we'll do that. We'll drive the best cars. We'll buy, you know, stuff that's just, this is so unnecessary when it comes to the basics, like the average person at home doesn't have a good frying pan, a good saute pan, you know, they're aluminum, they're, they're, they're Teflon buy stuff. That's going to last a lifetime that, that, that you're going to pay extra money for that. You're going to feel good about you buy something that's made from surgical stainless steel that has no reaction to the food you're putting it in. And you buy a good pan. that's going to last 30, 40 years. It's the only pan you need to buy. You buy a couple of those and you're set, you know, our mattress, you know, the mattress we sleep on is so important, and but we're more worried about the car we're driving, right? Mm. Look flashy when when our good night's sleep is so crucial for our health. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of us have our priorities backwards. Yeah, and um, and it's just it's 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 I try to I try to educate people that hey, that's just not the case. That's just you know, it, it's not, and uh, every choice you make matters. And like, we're not perfect at the restaurant. Um, you know, we're not nearly perfect, but we're conscious, right? So if you came to me and say, hey, I got a better chocolate than you've been serving because it might be one step closer to this or this or that. And well, you know, the chocolate we're serving is great. And I've done a lot of research on it. But if you can come to me with one better attribute, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna look at your chocolate and let's let's analyze them and see. And maybe I can buy a product that, that is one step better than I'm already buying. Um, you know, like quinoa, quinoa is a massive craze, um, but we buy American quinoa and we pay twice the price because quinoa that comes out of South America, uh, we've robbed the quinoa from these natives down there. We've robbed them of their main food source because they can't afford it anymore. So the farmers, they, they export it because it's on, it's such a, on fire globally that, that we're taking the, their mother grain, which is one of the most nutritious foods in the world, quinoa. There was a study done in the early eighties called the egg project and, Famous nutritionist said, I want to figure out what food item can benefit or, or come close to the nutritional value of an egg, right? And this was in the 80s, he knew this. And the one food he came up with was quinoa, far surpassed the nutrients of an egg, right? Um, and quinoa didn't take on, didn't really take off until 10, 15 years ago. We've been serving it forever, and I've been a huge fan of it. Um, but it's taken off on a global level that the people down there can't afford their own food anymore. This highly nutritious food that's that, that's kept this this civilization alive down there for millennia is no longer available to them. So, you know, we need to find other places to grow quinoa, high elevations. Colorado's great. There's a couple farms in Colorado. The downfall is no, you just can't grow quinoa and harvest it. You need a special processing tool that takes off the layer of saponin. If you grew, if everybody planted their own quinoa at, at their house in their garden and they harvested it at the end of the year and they went to eat it, you would hate it. You'd be like, that's not the stuff I'm buying in the store because that's that layer of sapapin um, makes it taste really, really bitter. So the farmer needs a special tool, uh, a milling device to take off that very thin layer of saponin. So it's just, you know, as, as far as far as what we all can do, we all just need to be conscious and understand that everything we're doing makes a difference. And every extra dollar you spend is appreciated by somebody somewhere, even though you may never meet that person and see that community, your dollar's going a long way. That's fantastic, man. Uh, love the way you approach business, life, health, just clear. Uh, you're self-aware. You're aware of the decisions you're making. You're making intentional decisions. And you're clearly, obviously, helping a lot of other people. So I do want you to tell me uh, what you're doing in terms of business coaching and helping and where pe where can people find you? I know people are going to listen to this and want to hear more from you. So tell me about your YouTube channel sure. and where else you'd want them to find you. Sure. So my main website is chefonamission.com. And once you get to that page, you'll see a, an arrow to click for health or you'll click an arrow for business. Um, uh, so if you click the, the health section, you'll stay on that site, chefonamission.com. You'll see a bunch of my videos, my link to my YouTube channel, um, all kinds of things that I believe in, companies I buy from, people that I like. If you click that business link, you're going to get taken to another site called 50mistakes.com, 50mistakes.com. And on that site... Um, is all of my business stuff. That site you will see gee, hundreds of videos on how to improve your business. You can sign up for my online academy, my emails, uh, coaching plan. I do everything from managing your social media, even though we're currently full on that right now. We're on a waiting list to work with us. Um, it's just, it's, it, but you're going to find a lot of tips and tricks on there that'll really help your business. I mean, 
one of the one things I really focus on right now with, with business owners is most business owners' personal fan page on Facebook sucks. Mm. They're like, but Marcus, it's my personal page on Facebook. Your personal page on Facebook is one of the best uh, and it's free ways to get business. And when you log on to your personal Facebook page and they see stupid pictures, they don't know who you are. Why would they trust you to go to your group? Why would they trust you to go to your fan page? Why would they trust you to do business with you? Right? So clean up, clean up that personal Facebook page. Let people know what you do. Get a professional headshot done. Make sure you're taking advantage of, of, of your featured photos. Put somebody in there with you with, with a celebrity or with an industry expert so you can gain credibility. A lifestyle shot of you living the good life with your family so they know what kind of person you are. And then, you know, um, a couple more professional shots of you in action doing something. Um, that cover photo. Let them know in that cover photo. Put some writing on there. Man, I do this. This is where you can find my company on here. Um, get my free book at this website. Whatever, you know. It's just it's so... It's just these are the things that people need to be taught. And um, and they just say, well, gee, I didn't have no idea my personal Facebook page. Yeah, your personal Facebook page. But there's so much more involved to it than just that. Um, you know, we can go on and on and on on the stuff that you're portraying and putting out there online and, and the image you need to keep up and, and the message you need to keep saying. And, and you know, every time you every time you speak and post something, you know, people people are judging you. They're deciding to do business with you. They're 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 formulating an opinion on you and you have three to seven seconds when they get to your home, your Facebook page, you have three to set they have You have three to seven seconds to convince them that, Hey, um, this is so-and-so from this company. I, I want to do business with them. Or, Hey, who is this person that, that I don't know this, who this person is. And I don't know if I can do business with them. Three to seven seconds you have take advantage of that. And, you know, there's a lot of other platforms, LinkedIn, there's a ton of other stuff that you should have your hands in dabbling in. And, uh, and of course, I'm looking professional on those. If you're if you're a restaurant owner, if you own a business, if you're if you're if you want to gain sales, make that page professional. Love it, man. Love it, uh, Marcus. Thank you very very much. You you're exactly the kind of uh, you run the kind of restaurant, and you're the kind of person that we're just really really proud to serve at Schedule Fly. As you know, we 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 don't serve chains. Uh, we only serve independent restaurants uh, for. for clear reasons and I don't want to get into all that right now but you're you're certainly somebody that we're proud to serve man and we appreciate the business we appreciate you taking the time for all the listeners to uh, share all your philosophies y'all go check out uh, Marcus's page he's got tons to say obviously uh, I'm going to go watch a bunch of videos I can't wait <laughs> you've got me inspired for sure particularly on uh, personal health stuff so thank you um, and folks thanks for listening um, if you are not a subscriber we'd love for you to subscribe in iTunes uh, give us a rating if you have any questions uh, of Marcus, you know where to reach him. For us, you can always uh, shoot us a note to support at schedulefly.com. I'll get that. I'll follow up. I'd love to hear from you. Marcus, thank you, man. Appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Great.